0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect. And today's episode is going to be slightly different from our usual format. Today, we'll listen to a recording from a recent prospect debate between Matthew Goodwin, a professor of politics at the University of Kent, and David Aranovich, a journalist who writes for the Financial Times, Prospect, and his own substack, Notes from the Underground. The question in contention is Britain run by an out of touch elite? Matthew Goodwin thinks that it is, and there's a new elite of radically progressive, morally righteous graduates who are dominating Britain's major institutions and imposing on the British public costly policies of hyper and mass migration. David Aranovic, meanwhile, views this as an absurd conspiracy theory that is only serving as a cover for a far-right political agenda. Who's right? Over now to David, Matthew and Joe Coburn, who kindly moderated the event last week.
2: Welcome, everybody. Lovely to see so many of you. I'm Joe Coburn, the presenter of BBC's Politics Live, and I haven't quite decided if my role in tonight's proceedings will be rather superfluous, given the nature of our speakers this evening, or if this is going to be the gig from hell. Now, this evening's debate is entitled Is Britain Run by a New Out-of-Touch Elite? But it might just as well be called... Aronovich versus Goodwin. Something I have learned from our little chat in the green room is that they met five years ago. Who knew? Um, So they've had plenty of time to gear up for this second round. Now, for those of you who spend more time than is healthy on Twitter, or X, as it's now known, you'll be aware of the lively and sometimes heated exchanges between the two men. Are Britain's major institutions really dominated by a new elite of radically progressive, morally righteous graduates, as Matthew Goodwin claims, filled with class prejudice, out of touch with the British public, and imposing on them costly policies of hyper-globalisation and mass migration? Or is David Aronovich, his views that this new model of power in Britain is an absurd conspiracy theory, or as David tells me, flawed wrong and constructed for political ends only. Anyway, after the Twitter spat, here they are, uh, and they've agreed to debate in person. So it is time for me to welcome Matthew Goodwin first to the podium. Matthew. Thank you, Joe. Well, thank
3: you to uh, Prospect Magazine for hosting uh, the debate. Thanks to Joe for chairing. Thanks to David as well for agreeing to debate the book because so many of my critics uh, refuse to debate. Uh, the contents of the book in person, so thank you to David for giving up time to do it. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Um, I'd like to just begin by getting a sense of the audience. I always like to do this at the beginning of talks and debates. So just by a show of hands, because I can just about see you all, um, how many people in this room voted for Brexit? I'd say that's about a third. Um, How many people in this hall went to a Russell Group University or Oxford or Cambridge? say, about more than half, probably. Um, How many people think a man can get pregnant? (laughs) Okay, all right. So the question we're debating um, tonight is, is Britain run by an out-of-touch elite? My answer, if you've read the book, is yes, of course it is. We all know it is. We can all sense that it is. And if you don't, then I would suggest that you are part of this new ruling class, the members of this new elite, who are they? They are the new uh, middle class professionals. They have gone to uh, Russell group or Oxford universities. They come from privileged family backgrounds. Um, their parents often also went to university just like they did. Their friendship circles, their marriages, etc, are filled with other members of the elite graduate uh, class. They tend to share the same socially liberal, if not radically uh, progressive or woke uh, values. And crucially, they have been drifting leftwards on culture over the last 20 years. Increasingly, they've been drifting away from the rest of the country, away from the average voter on all of the big cultural and identity questions of our time. Immigration, uh, our national borders, sex and gender, uh, security, our sense of history, our sense of identity, who we are. As a people and as a country, that's why they didn't see things like Brexit coming. It's why they really didn't see things like Boris Johnson's big majority coming, or Donald Trump coming, or Marine Le Pen coming, etc., etc., because they've drifted so far away from other people on these issues that they no longer really understand what other people are thinking. I do not know of a single serious academic or data analyst who would refute that the elite graduate class are drifting away from the non-graduate majority. If you've looked at the data, it's pretty clear this is happening. On the right, it's been shown by people like Charles Murray in his excellent book, Coming Apart. On the left, it's been shown by people like David Shaw, Barack Obama's uh, data analyst. This is what academics call education polarization, and it is the reason why politics is so volatile today. It is not a conspiracy, as David and perhaps others might suggest. It is not a conspiracy. It is simply the way in which graduates and non-graduates are drifting apart on these issues. Now, what my fellow academics, and I suspect David, would take issue with is how I refer to those people as the new elite. And that is largely because those people don't like to think of themselves as belonging to the elite. They like to think of themselves as the underdogs, railing against the system, railing against the old elite, the Tory elite. One of the big misconceptions about my book is I think people assumed I was saying the old elite no longer exists. I never said that. The book is quite clear, and you can go to the private members' clubs in St. James and Pall Mall, and you can read the Sunday Times Rich List, and you can still see the old elite very much in play. You can look at the Tory cabinet, among other things. But what I'm arguing is that the axis of power in this country is tilting away from that old elite towards the new graduate elite, which is increasingly wielding immense cultural, political, and economic power in this country. They're in the elite because they dominate almost every single important and influential institution in this country. The House of Commons, the BBC, the media, the creative industries, the publishing industries, the cultural institutions, the universities where I work, the schools, the public bodies, the civil service, I could go on and on and on, on. The people who not only determine the policy making process and shape the policy making process but who ultimately determine what is and is not acceptable to discuss in this country. The people who determine uh, the prevailing culture. And if you look at those institutions, they are filled to the brim with people who share the same social backgrounds, who subscribe to the same set of values, who, as the research shows, look down on much of the rest of the country, the new graduate elite, are the most likely to unfriend people on Facebook who hold different political views to their own, They're the most likely to block people on Twitter who express views they disagree with. They're the most likely to say they would not like their son or daughter to marry somebody who voted conservative or might have voted for things like Brexit. They certainly would not like to associate with somebody who holds gender-critical views. And they express a form of class prejudice that would not be tolerated a form of prejudice would not be tolerated were it directed to any other group in British society. But in the aftermath of Brexit, it was somehow considered acceptable among the new elite to derive much of the rest of the country as racists, gammons, thickos, and idiots. And crucially, unlike the old elite, it's not only that they've been drifting to the cultural left, it's that they derive their sense of social status, moral righteousness, and esteem from their luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs are beliefs that the new elite advocate which bring them status from other elites but impose few costs on them, but which impose heavy costs on everybody else. Mass immigration is one example. Hyper-globalization is another. Deregulating the economy, liberalizing finance, encouraging the breakdown of the traditional family unit criticizing, deriding, revising our national identity, questioning our national history or suggesting that there's something somehow problematic about being from this place that we call home. All the while being deeply hypocritical. The new elite are the most likely to get married, to stay married, to have children while they're married. They're the least likely to view things as national, like national identity and our history as being an important part of who they are, but they're the most likely to deride those things leaving everybody else with a sense that actually they no longer have status because of how those things are being devalued. And they imposed their values on everybody else. That's why Brexit happened. That's why Boris Johnson happened. That's why we're here in this polarised society. They said all of these things would help our society and lift all of our boats. Mass immigration. Turned out that actually it doesn't really bring that much benefit at all. The Oxford Migration Observatory just concluded that at best it adds 1% of GDP, but they're not quite sure because it might also be taking away one percentage point of GDP. Globalisation. You remember when Tony Blair said in 2005, if you questioned it, you were an idiot. Turns out the new consensus in economics is globalisation did negatively hit working-class non-graduates in Western economies. So voters weren't stupid. They knew exactly what was going on they could sense that they were being undermined and weakened and left behind by things that were being imposed on them from above. And if they look around British society today, I would put it to you that what they can see is this political project accelerating. They look at their schools and they see the imposition of ideas like critical race theory, a completely divisive, un-British, ideological worldview which says to children, the only interesting thing about you is not your character, but is the colour of your skin. Now, David will tell you this isn't happening. If you've read what I've been writing, or if you've read some of the research that's been done by groups like Don't Divide Us, they've shown quite clearly through Freedom of Information requests that about a quarter of all councils in England are advocating CRT on local schools. Some schools are even providing lessons for black British kids that they're not providing for white British kids. Or gender identity theory. We're now telling kids the only interesting thing about them is their sexual identity, or that actually they should pick and choose from 72 genders. Or we should allow schools to bring in third-party providers which are not regulated, which are often led by ideological radicals, and which are imposing a political project on institutions which should be politically impartial. Or they're looking at civil servants who are threatening to strike because they disagree with policies that are being pursued by a democratically elected government. Or they're looking at the National Health Service, which is becoming increasingly politicized. Or they're looking at the banks, which are debanking people because they simply don't like their political views. Or they're looking at the universities, which are chasing contrarian speakers like (laughs) Kathleen Stock and others off campus because they happen to advocate beliefs and views which somehow challenge this radical progressive orthodoxy. That is why 60% of people in this country now say they're too scared to say what they really think because they're scared of the consequences. That's a YouGov poll, you can look it up online. It's why over 70% of people in this country now say left and right no longer represent people like me because they can sense when they look at politics and they can look at the institutions that they're being exposed to a project which is actually not really that interested in the rest of the country. It's interested in advocating the values of this new elite, denying the voice of millions of people, and reshaping our society around a new moral hierarchy where the people at the top belong to this new graduate class and the people at the bottom just happen to think differently from them. And I think millions of people are sick of it. And I think millions of people are looking for a different politics, politics outside of left and right, and one that reasserts the values of the wider majority and gives them a voice in the institutions which which have lost touch with the rest of Britain, so thank you very much.
2: Just before David Aronovich speaks, just to reiterate that once he finishes there will be a chance (coughs) for both Matthew and David to respond to what they've heard the others say, um, with perhaps a few questions from me in between. David. Uh,
4: Matthew Goodwin would regularly complain on what used to be called Twitter, that people like Emily Mateless wouldn't debate against him, and it seemed really unfair. Uh, so I offered this debate, and to his immense credit, he took me up on it, and I thank him for it, but it wasn't until before he'd told me that I should hang up my boots. Um, so, clearly, you're glad in this instance that I didn't hang them up, and uh, I'm glad that I didn't as well. But it's a long time since I took part in a debate like this. Almost the last time was five years ago with Matthew in this very hall. Now, I want to make four arguments, not that this is a conspiracy theory, um, but that it's wrong, um, that it's flawed, that it doesn't explain modern Britain. And More to the point, and this is what I will do in my second contribution to this, that it actually is being used for a very specific political agenda. And I don't make this as some kind of conspiracy statement. It's not a conspiracy. It's absolutely uh, out in the open. I just want to explain to people what I think it is. Right, the first thing to say about the new social elite is it's a construct, not a fact, okay? It's not a real thing, it's something that Matthew has made up. Now, there's no disgrace in that. Uh, people theorise all the time and construct categories all the time. But my first argument is that this particular uh, construct is achieved by some absolutely heroic academic cherry-picking. And I just want to remind you of Matthew's own words in the book about what the new elite is. The new elite is composed of Britain's doctors, architects. Newspaper editors, journalists, politicians, publishers, think tankers, broadcasters, civil servants and academics. Of those, I think only three of those groups are actually very large, probably doctors, civil servants and academics. All the rest are very small groups indeed. And it turns out, um, and you heard Matthew say this, Oxbridge and Russell Group University graduates. Why them? You willingly put your hand up if you were uh, Russell Group uh, graduates, which meant that um, out of the 160 universities in this country, uh, 24 uh, uh, of them had the affiliations of some of you in this hall. They didn't include St Andrews, Sussex, University Colleges, Bangor, Aberystwyth, Aberdeen, Dundee, Soas, Leicester, Brunel, Bath, or... Maybe this is more significant. Kent, where Matthew is a professor, or Salford, where he studied. And you wonder, why? Why are these other universities somehow left out of being part of the new social elite? And I can imagine people in those universities being rather cross at the idea that they are not to be regarded as being part of it. Is it because these graduates are not quite rich enough to rise to the requisite level of moneyed self-interest which a satisfying evil elite should possess. Come to that, do teachers not hold roughly the same attitudes as architects, possibly even more so? Yeah, but to include them, I intuit, ruins the elite look of the people who Goodwin holds the blame for our current state, because like a lot of left-leaning liberals, probably like most left-leaning liberals, they're actually quite poor so they don't really fit the bill. Also, at being between 25 and 30% of the population, Matthew's estimate on this varies, the new social elite is looking baggy enough as it is. Who else isn't there? Well, omitted from the elite group are the people who actually earn the most money, own by far and away the most wealth, enjoy easily the most privileged pre-university educations and the contacts that go with them, and in recent times has funded, directly or indirectly, quite a lot of what Professor Goodwin does. They could creep back into the categories, and I'm not suggesting that they won't. This is because at various times in Professor Goodwin's analysis, this new social elite comprises of overlaps with, or is held to be synonymous with, radical progressives, which is essentially the most idiotic people in universities, and here I completely concur with him, there are an <laughs> awful lot of those. Remainers, as opposed to Leavers, Cosmopolitans, as opposed to Traditionalists, um, and they also there also are, in his book, identity liberals and anywheres. It's good to see, by the way, David Goodhart here. His positive reviews of Matthew Goodwin's various books Are almost as much of an education to read as Matthew Goodwin's positive reviews of David Goodhart's various (laughs) books. To which I say, no shame in that. This is a hard world, and one has to make one's way in it. That's number one. The two, first, it's a construct. Second, the thesis itself is flawed. Now, you remember all those data scientists and sociologists, et cetera, who agree with Matthew Goodwin, he says. Unfortunately for him, I've been talking to some of them. Um, And I asked them, look, what do you make of the various claims made in this book? I didn't have enough time to uh, have a whole uh, number of illustrations uh, of how uh, Matthew selects facts that he likes and leaves alone those that he doesn't. But here's just a couple that stood out for me. Now, as we'll see, as elites go, the new social elite is a really bad one, not least because it's self-serving, and Matthew said so in his opening. On page 19 of his book, Matthew asserts that it is the group, and I quote, least concerned about rising inequality. This from the YouGov poll of November 2020. Question, thinking of income levels generally in Britain today, would you say that the gap between those with high incomes and those with low incomes is too high or too low? Too high remain voters, 87%, leave voters, 77% this question. Is it right or wrong that people with higher incomes can buy better education for their children than people with lower incomes? Remain, 51% say wrong. Leave, 36% say wrong. YouGov poll, May 2023. In principle, would you support or oppose a large increase in the amount of new social housing being built in Britain? Remain voters support it, 73%. Leave voters support, 63%. 63%. Remain voters opposing new social housing, 16%. Leave voters opposing it, 29%. This does not bear out the picture with Matthew creates to you, but he simply doesn't tell you that these are also the facts in the survey. Again, same page, page 19, to stress how out of touch the new social elite is. And Again, Matthew made this uh, charge during the course of his speech. He writes, while 66% of Britain's university degree holders, by the way, that's all of them, express strong support for Black Lives Matter, only 38% of non-graduates do. By the way, this is not an assessment of whether Black Lives Matter is correct or not. This is a a question of how out of touch with the majority people are. But in fact, that 60% is for all support. Not strong support, Matthew. Only 38% of graduates actually express strong support. You elided that point. If you'd elided in the other direction, I'd have forgiven you, but it went in the direction you needed to make your point. That's one page. Uh, There are many other examples. I could give them to you, and in the fullness of time, people will, but that'll do for the moment. So the third part of my argument. Not only does this thesis not explain anything, that's not its problem. It obscures the truth. Now, I'll pass over the hint in the book that Norman Tebbit, as a supporter of untrammeled free trade, was a paleolithic member of the new social elite. It's in there. You can find it. You can work it out for yourself. Not least, because it's far from Goodwin's own sentiment statements, and I've now watched many many of his appearance leading up to this debate, that he sympathises with the folk of the Red Wall to the extent of welcoming a higher tax, higher spending, higher government intervention uh, approach as opposed to just favouring trade protectionism, which is what he actually does. He complains about higher taxes. He complains about higher uh, state spending. He complains, in several of his appearances, about bigger government. But what he does say is he favours trade protectionism. That's his major economic policy for the left behind, which for a country our size, outside the main trading blocks, is just a catastrophe waiting for some new Liz trust to come along and impose it. Now, as a historian by training, I detect a weakness also in the historical recollection. The thesis is, uh, that Matthew puts forward early on, is the that Thatcher's liberal economic revolution, presumably aided by the new elite and kind of zygotic stage is then rounded off by Blair's full-on liberal revolution, you get it? She does the economics, he does the liberal, and by the time you get to the end of it, all mayhem has been let loose. This is at least partial amnesia. On gay rights and women's rights, that government was indeed liberal, very liberal. It's good to see my friend Simon Fanshawe here who lived through those times and campaigned through those times, who knows what that government achieved. Perhaps Matthew thinks it was too liberal on those issues. He'll tell us. On asylum-seeking, it wasn't liberal at all. And no government, alas, has been in any way liberal. They've all been restrictionists on asylum-seeking, and they've all failed, though Blair's did better. But unmentioned anywhere by the professor is that Blair also brought in anti-social behaviour orders, tried to bring in a national ID card scrapped by the Conservatives, attempted to legislate for 90-day detention without trial trial for terror suspects, opposed by the Conservatives, probably rightly. He was not a liberal, and he didn't seek a liberal revolution. And if he was an elitist, he was an elitist who desperately sought to make the elite bigger, Brought in millions of people whose families had no experience of higher education as had already happened in other countries. Now, this is a weird way of maintaining one's elite position. The whole point about elites is that they're self-perpetuating. This one was self-diluting. It doesn't work. And as for not caring about the mass of ordinary Britons, hard to explain the spending on the NHS and education service. But also, the new social elite theory fails to account for the greatest revolution in that period, the rise of women in higher education and the workforce, which actually, I suspect, lies behind an awful lot of the problems here. Now, most mentions of women in Goodwin's work concern the battle of, over transgender rights, but I did catch him on one of his very many YouTube appearances, and I quote, this is what you said, Matthew. What's happening to young women? Something weird is happening. They're moving sharply to the left, politically and culturally. Men and women are going to move in quite different directions, leaving a group of men who will also struggle to connect to wider society. And you thought, why is it the women who are being weird here? I think we have an idea. Mm. But there is no future. He knows this in openly advocating that women get back into their box, which is one of the kind of little bits of agenda uh, to the let's get back to the traditional family, which gets swept under the carpet because it has no attractiveness. Um, New right people in other countries do otherwise which means that all the big resentment that can usefully be mobilised right now around this agenda is to be found in the issue of immigration. And here again, and Matthew did it again in his speech, he exaggerates the degree to which his new social elite is out of line with the rest of Britain. Now, On page 21 he writes, in Britain, between the Brexit referendum in 2016 and the fall of Boris Johnson in 2022, the share of typically university-educated remainers which is another bracketing of the new social elite, who wanted immigration reduced, collapsed by 20 points to 23%. And Goodwin implies that the 20-point drop was out of line with the national average. In fact, the figure for Britain as a whole was a reduction of 26 points from 68% to 42%, so yes, the uh, exam-passing classes were less bothered by immigration, but their shift since 2016 is actually below the national average. Would you have guessed that from his introduction? Would you have known that? No. In fact, overall, the number of people assessed by researchers as liberal has risen from 6% in 2011 to 21% in 2021, While the number classified as authoritarian has fallen from 63% to 39%, the clear trend is towards a less authoritarian society. I want to say just this, and then I should finish for this particular section. There is a real out-of-touch elite. And it's possible with justice to argue that events since 2010 have indeed seen Britain in the grip of such an elite, which certainly was increasingly out of touch with the needs and priorities of the British people. In 2010, a coalition government was elected and the Conservative PM was appointed, as it happens, an old Etonian from a stockbroking background who had shared an elite drinking club at uni with his Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Conservative Mayor of London. In 2015, that Prime Minister conceded a referendum on the EU in order, he later said, to pacify a section of his party. There was no big clamour for such a vote among the electorate. When that referendum was narrowly won by Leave, a number of different possibilities existed about how to enact it. In the process of decision, the government was in effect, and we all saw it happen, held hostage, and then taken over by a section of the party which demanded the most extreme version of Brexit, including that other member of that university drinking party. Now, what characterised that group, that particular group? Its campaigners were funded by hedge fund billionaires. Its supporters were ennobled and sent to the House of Lords. It was backed vociferously by most of the press, and recollecting it, I had to smile at Matthew's assertion that the liberal folks who dominate the national conversation are the colonists and the BBC, as Richard Littlejohn never tires of telling Alastair Heath. And that elite is gloriously out of touch now. Recent polling has right to leave we were right to leave at 32 to 33 percent, and wrong to leave at 55 to 58 percent. Support for rejoining currently runs at about 58 percent to 60 percent. And yet no political party contemplates or suggests rejoining. Which elite is in control here? Not mine.) Um, I think I'm going to leave it there, yeah, and I'll come back to the rest of it, the rest of it later, etc. My point is fairly clear about what it is that the, um, this particular construct, why it's flawed, and why it doesn't work. The point I want to make when I come back to it, and particularly surrounding the question of immigration and the way it's used, it's what its current political function actually is. But I thank you very much.
1: After the break we'll hear more from Matthew and David. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism we'd encourage you to subscribe. Prospect brings rigorously fact-checked analysis ideas and perspectives to the big topics that the world is grappling with. A digital subscription costs just three pounds for three months of access and then 49 pounds annually. See the show notes for more details.
4: Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews, in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Can I suggest that you start, actually, Matthew, in your reply on the final preroration uh, that David put forward there, which is an interesting one because you started by saying uh, the elite didn't see Brexit coming mm. um, and the media were part of that. But the figures just used by David now show a certain amount of buyers' remorse, rightly or wrongly. Did you see that coming? Well, if you,
3: if you ask people do you a simple question, do you want to... Uh, rejoin or stay out, there's absolutely no question that rejoin is ahead and that that regret has become a real thing in our national psyche. Um, However, if you ask people as I've done on Substack, and you can read it there, um, would you rejoin if this is what it entails? Signing up, well, the reality is this is what will happen during a political campaign, right? People will be presented with arguments. Mm. Um, Accepting freedom of movement, losing the opt-outs, paying more into the budget, um, most likely accepting things like Schengen. Um, It becomes a much closer race. And I think, in a way, the Brexit debate since Brexit has reflected the power of what I talk about in the book. Firstly, we had a relentless quest to essentially turn Brexit into something that was largely meaningless from the status quo. Brexit, for many of the people who voted for it, I didn't vote for Brexit, I didn't campaign for Brexit, but in the aftermath of the referendum, I thought, okay, this is what people want, let's, let's do it.
2: What, what did they and, want? What did and and I, you think
3: I they think? I, well, I think they wanted a meaningful break from the European Union, I think they wanted to live in an independent, self governing nation, and I think they wanted less immigration. Now, what they've been given since is something quite different. <laughs> what they've been given since, and this brings me to a misconception about the book which David also picked up on, you know, the new elite is not about people in the Labour Party. There are as many members of the new elite in the Conservative Party, the Tory Party, as there are on the left of politics. And what we saw after the Brexit referendum was the opposite of what people wanted to see, especially when it comes to immigration. The liberalisation of the entire system, the lowering of salary thresholds to £23,000 for skilled workers. The average wage in this country is 33,000 pounds. Boris Johnson removing (coughs) the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs in Britain first. Okay, so the Conservative Party took a request for a completely different political economy and social settlement and they didn't ignore it but they essentially uh, didn't know what to do with it. Uh, And I think if we end up in a situation where we have a second referendum, and I don't think we will get there simply because of the chaos in the European Union. This is one thing that David and others are really good at doing, is sort of ignoring the chaos that is engulfing the European Union. We have ongoing economic divergence between North and South. We have a refugee crisis that isn't sorted. We have Southern EU member states crippled by debt, we've got 30-40% to youth unemployment rates across much of southern Europe, we've got the biggest corruption case in the European Union in its entire history, we've got a democratic deficit in every EU institution which is still not being remedied, and yet people are saying, well, the Brits want to go back in. I'm afraid to say, at a second referendum if it comes about, the argument for staying out, for being better off out, is stronger than the argument for leaving in the first place.
2: Can I just interject? This this phrase, self-governing nation, um, implies that we weren't a self-governing nation before. But if you explain to people now, when you talk about high levels of immigration, we have the highest levels of net migration uh, since the UK left the EU, and we are supposedly a self-governing nation. Why has that happened
3: a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, we've not, we left the European Union without also restoring our judicial independence. So, we, firstly, we can't meaningfully control the issue of illegal migration. And the second is we've had a conservative government that has, I would argue, misinterpreted what the vote for Brexit was all about by liberalising legal migration, including international students and low-skill migration. So the end result is we've had... Plus we've had international crises like um, Hong Kong, Ukraine, where obviously we should, have, we, should have, um, we should have helped refugees. But the end result is we've had a net migration level now of 600,000. Now, if you just look at what's going to happen to Britain in the next 10 to 15 years, even if you remove some of the more sensational forecasts we are likely to see an increase in our population that will be equivalent to somewhere between five and 10 cities the size of Birmingham, okay, over the next 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. We are going to see demographic changes on a scale that we cannot really currently anticipate, and the pressure on public services, the environment, Housing, You know, it's fine for Labour, by the way, to come out and say, let's build one and a half million homes. Yeah, on current estimates, we need to build 650,000 homes every year just to maintain uh, the demand for migration. So Labour's given us two years, just over two years of housing related to that. So my plea in the book, because David is absolutely right in one of the things he said, He said the percentage of Britain's population that are strongly and consistently socially liberal on these issues is 20%. And he's absolutely right. The latest British Social Attitude Survey shows that. 20%. What I would put it to you is our politics and our national conversation is completely shaped around 20%. Leaving 80% looking at these issues like migration... Like Like globalisation, Mm -hmm. like the advance of radical progressivism in the schools and the institutions, thinking, what the hell is going on? Because none of this reflects my values.
2: Can we talk about academia briefly? And you can respond to, obviously, everything that Matthew has said. But Matthew's claim uh, that this elite graduate class, this drifting leftwards on culture over the last 20 years, and refers to Tony Blair, who expanded and had uh, an ambition to expand uh, higher education uh, dramatically, um, has left him feeling that freedom of speech is not functioning properly in our academic institutions, and I think there's a lot of evidence to to show that, cancel culture, people not being allowed to say things that perhaps don't chime with a younger, and, I mean, no surprise, more perhaps left-wing members of universities. Would you accept that that has made it difficult for people in academia to express the sorts of views that Matthew has? Definitely.
4: Definitely. When I debated Matthew five years ago, um, I got into a lot of trouble with some people because I was actually doing the debate at all. Um, and there was a round-robin letter which had a number of uh, academics, amongst others, who signed it saying that I shouldn't do it, uh, it shouldn't happen. Um, I mean, it was a provocatively titled debate, um, and I do think that the commitment to free speech is a problem, not just in British universities, by the way. And I have to say that quite a lot of the calls that have come forward from what I would call the new right for effectively making funding for universities dependent on what courses they teach, Mm -hmm. et cetera, strike me as very much like Ron DeSantis, who... uh, who's been much praised by Matthew's very good friend and colleague, Eric Kaufman, for having done this and says something of a model for British universities to follow. So it's not just a left-wing thing, but that's not happening here uh, in Britain so far. So absolutely, definitely. So if we talk about something like the way in which uh, Kathleen Stock was treated at Sussex University mm, was an absolute there. disgrace. The, um, at that point in time, the university authorities showed a degree of cowardice and this is part of the problem, this is a problem that we have, is that institutions not by far, by no means necessarily convinced of the arguments which, and publishers are similar, uh, actually do give way to the claims of activists to represent many more people than they actually represent. And in that, uh, in that area, I do agree with him. That does not construct an idea of a new social elite which is actually bound on an effective uh, uh, um, uh, iteration of the replacement theory, and it certainly doesn't actually
2: reflect upon Britain's immigrant population now or future. Do you think, Matthew, that you are picking Only extreme examples in every sphere of British life that you talk about. Um, When it comes to the surveys that you quote, you talked about gender ideology, the 72 different genders being taught in schools. We did look at this at the BBC. There was one example of it. And yet, if you take what could be legitimate examples of anything from gender ideology to, as you say, you think millions of people are sick... Of this new elite that is out of touch with them, that you are just fueling the division rather than exposing the fact that people are fed up.
3: No, I think I represent a majority of the country.
2: And what um, do you base it on?
3: Based on a lot of the research, a lot of the, a lot of the things that I spend my time doing. I mean, I'm on. You know, I'm doing events like this all the time, I'm sitting in focus groups with voters, I'm surveying them, I'm polling them, I've been more right than I've been wrong. And I think if you take, take an issue like gender ideology, take Scotland as an example. Scotland was really revealing. Everybody, you know, based on the conversation that we had in the press before that gender recognition reform bill, there was a sort of assumption that people were somehow down with gender identity theory and allowing 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without any medical supervision or even letting mum and dad know. Turns out, when Scots looked at it, 80% of them said, no thanks. Only 20% went for for that policy. You can do the same. Should we rename pregnant women pregnant persons? I've polled that. That's a 5% issue. Only 5% of people think we should do it. Do you think Britain is an institutionally racist society? Only a minority of the country think it is. I can go on and on. And the reason these radical progressive positions get so much traction, like Gary Lineker, St. Gary, sitting on Twitter, everybody kind of, wow, he's amazing, he's amazing. Gary Lineker represents, at best, 20% of the country when he compares things to 1930s Germany, although, interestingly, over the last week, the comparisons to 1930s, I thought, were more pressing. Actually, over the last week, and St. Gary didn't say anything. But on on all of these issues, on all of these issues, that radical progressives push, and David's absolutely right, because once you get a committed activist minority, moderates are terrified. They're scared of speaking up. If you want to get a sense of it, look how much shit I get on Twitter from academics for speaking out about some of these issues, okay? Moderates are terrified, so what ends up happening it's the schools, the universities, the institutions get wrapped around these crazy narratives and beliefs that don't represent the wider majority. And we've seen it, by the way, this week, and I don't want to revisit the debate that Joe and I had yesterday, no. but we've seen Please it die. in the discussion of Hamas in Israel. We've seen it where these so-called radical progressives mm. seem to no. now define themselves by downplaying atrocities and viewing clearly terrorist organisations as being... Well, Somehow, let, not me, bring, that. let me bring
2: you back, there. to and the so, And So
3: when you say I'm picking the most fringe extreme examples, I really push back on that. I would suggest the new ruling class in this country have sort of become overwhelmed and almost in awe of this 15%. And if you look at the More in Common surveys, and David is picking me up and saying, you're not representing the data, do it for yourself. Go home tonight, read the UK report by More in Common. They say 15% of this country is represented by radical progressives. And they show you just how out of touch they are. They live on Twitter. They are obsessed with the idea Britain is a fundamentally racist country. They say we can't move on unless we revisit what happened centuries ago. And they're completely consumed with things like radical gender ideology. Now, that 15% dominates the institutions.
2: Let me me pick you up on that issue about how... A lot of people will think, are these really the issues, David, that people are thinking about on a day-to-day basis? Um, the media does give an awful lot of attention to what I suppose we would broadly call culture, uh, culture wars or identity politics. Hasn't that been unhealthy for our public discourse? I think it's been infuriating, uh, apart from anything else. I mean...
4: One of, the things, one of the things that I was aware of in my latter day at the Times was that although it might be difficult getting a column on a particular subject through the editors, etc., not because they wanted to politically uh, uh, necessarily censor it, but just certain kind of, you know, maybe steer off politics, David, maybe... But if you were to suggest something from out of the culture wars, you could always get it on the page. Always, always, always. And there are some people who've now, very good people, who've been employed by the Times and Sunday Times now, who don't yet know that that's all they're going to be allowed to write about. Um, Because it sells. You can have a view, a really strong view, on a culture wars issue where you cannot rise to having a view on a major economic issue because it's too complex. So people default off to it all the time. And we have grown up in this country, on both sides of this divide, a group of what you might call culture wars entrepreneurs, who I think Matthew is one, um, and there are others, who are making considerable amounts of uh, personal success out of the business of effectively monetizing the culture wars. There are people who do nothing else uh, but do this. Um, I'm just going to save it a bit, but um, uh, you, Will, last weekend, you attended a conference on immigration hosted by the New Culture Forum. Mm -hmm. The New Culture Forum only exists to weaponise the culture wars. That's its own existence. It's run by a guy who used to be a UKIP uh, member of the Greater London Authority. His last video about London was about how he was leaving London to go to Windsor, essentially because there are too many brown people in London now. That's more or less what the video says. I'm pre it, but not really by, by very much. So, Matthew, you attend his conference, sure. and there you are, perfectly entitled to do it. I don't complain uh, about it, actually. Um, in, the, uh, in the... who it, complaining it, about it now? ..in the agenda. In the agenda, it locates you somewhere, I think, between uh, a Ben Habibi, uh, who was a leading member of the Reform Party, still is, and the leader of the Reclaim Party, Lawrence Fox. Matthew, did Lawrence Fox turn up for that?
3: I didn't see Lawrence, no.
4: Oh, did you not? Okay, what a shame, because you were due to speak with him. Uh, am, I, am I allowed to well, reply yeah, to this? No, 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 but you're allowed before, to let me but speak. Hang on, hang on.
2: Oh. Just before just before you do, to come back to your issues, saying particularly the example at The at the Times, um, uh, for purposes of this conversation, is it, though, is Matthew right that it it's the new elite within the institutions of media, academia... Uh, and so on, that have allowed well, this uh, only, only if you think Paul Dacre
4: is a member of the new elite.
2: Mm. I mean, only if you
4: think that the editor of The Times is a member of the new elite.
2: Can I just come back on I
4: didn't interrupt you. No, all right. Ha-
2: all right. Hang on. Oh, sorry, I thought you'd finish. Hang on. I'll no, let, you didn't. Let, think David, let David finish his thought and then I'll let you come back. Yeah, go on.
4: Um, I'm going to let Matthew have his say now. Oh. I feel suitably interrupted. <laughs> Matthew?
3: You sure you finished? Okay. Quickly, otherwise I'll. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this is a great example. the The argument is always guilt by association, right? That's the argument that is deployed. Mm. If you spoke at this event alongside this person, therefore you're discredited. It's a It's a classic uh, thing the left will always do, and um, I I would not give a monkeys if David appeared alongside, you know, hardcore communists or whatever. I'm interested in what he's got to say. And over the last over the last no, I wouldn't care. Over the last I've never really gone personal with David. Over the last few weeks I've spoken at the SDP conference, the Conservative Party conference, the Reform Party conference, I've gone to the Labour conference, I've spoken to more in common, which is not exactly a mad right wing think tank, (laughs) among many others. So the idea what David's trying to imply is well this is, you know, Suggest, this is why your argument is somehow discredited. Actually, the framing of this conversation reflects some of the things I talk about in the book. You know, we talk about these issues... I'm sorry. We talk... Sorry.
4: No, no, Joe, just a second. Not, no, I'm, you spoke for a very long time. You then interrupted me come when on. I was talking. Are you now going to speak for a very long time David again? David, I'm, I'm going to make... On a, the frame. I'm sorry. Let finish on the framing and I'll come
3: back. David, you, you've just berated me for interrupting you. Um, the, what I find fascinating beyond that is we take issues... Like the rights of women, the rights of children, our history, our identity, free speech, and we package them all up as culture wars. And we say, we're not supposed to talk about these things, they're toxic, they're socially unacceptable, we should be talking about the economy, when in reality those things are the foundation of who we are. Those are the things that make us who we are. They're the foundations of our civilization. Or to quip on Kennedy, there are a hell of a lot more going on than GDP in our society. And what I really resent is the moment you discuss any of those issues, people on the left say, aha, it's the culture war. You're a culture war entrepreneur. Actually, 75% of people in this country want to talk about what is happening in this country with border security, and demographic change. The vast majority of parents, 75% want to see what their kids are being taught when it comes to sex, gender and race. Because David might laugh, but for many people who are going home at the end of the day, looking at what is being taught in schools, or looking at what's happening on the borders, or looking at the guy yesterday who was murdered by an asylum seeker, or looking at all of these things that are playing out in British society, and they want to talk about it.
2: Well, let me put that back to David, because it is an interesting... it It is an interesting point, isn't it, David, in terms of the debate about what people want to talk about You go back to David Cameron calling people... Well, I think it was part of UKIP, Fruit Loops and so on and so forth. If, If people feel they are looked down upon for holding certain views, if they feel patronised for talking about immigration, for example, and they want to raise these issues, are you playing in... Not you, but is one playing into the hands of those who say, that that is what the new elite does. They tell us what we should think and how we should behave on these issues that they find important. Well, to a certain extent, if you... They'll say it anyway, whatever you actually do. But is that a suspicion of motivation? I mean... No, 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 it's
4: it's, it's just that I think think one thing you've got to understand is where we are currently with political polarisation and what Mm. it is that's going on. And this is something that I very much wanted to come onto. And it's not a guilt by association. I think it's just trying to point out what the political project is here. Because this this doesn't exist in some kind of a vacuum. Matthew very rightly said he went to speak to a number of things. And then you will notice, because he does, with a, with a wonderful Goodwinian elision, a kind of little leap you hardly even notice, and I went to the Labour Party conference. Um, anybody can go to the Labour Party conference. He speaks at all the other conferences. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't speak at all the conferences, but look at what they all are and look at what they are all trying to do. The and Conservative Party conferences, a
2: governing party conference. It, governing him, party conference. It, yeah, I mean, but let <laughs> him finish. Go on, David.
4: Well, I don't know whether it was the part of this Conservative Party conference where Priti Patel was doing her knees up with Nigel Farage at the GB News that Party. That was the uh, GB World News Party. party. Was, that, was that the one you it had was. in mind? Okay. Well, in that case, that's funny because that was... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You'll have a chance are to you, question a moment. Uh, ha, are you part of the intolerant new social elite here? <laughs> mm. Because... Because Professor Goodwin has been warning me about you, and you sound like a very, very bad lot to me, and that's part of my point, really, which is we were talking about the new social elite. Remember that was the subject which mm. we actually started off with. What was this for, and Out what of did that actually represent, etc.? One of the very important characteristics, or sets of characteristics, that Matthew gives the new social elite, which differs it from an idea of some kind of sociological um, uh, theory, yeah. is that he hates them. And I'm not joking. Let me read this for you. It's absolutely clear, because this isn't analysis. Um, uh, this is something else. Uh, gathering their news from the BBC, the Times, or, the, or Radio 4, and the sneer is in, even as you, get, you know what you're supposed to think at this stage, they are far more likely than others to believe that rising diversity enriches Britain, that immigration, globalisation, open markets are changing the country for the better, because... They have benefited far more than other groups from these changes, both economically and culturally. The new elite are also the least concerned about rising inequality. We already know that's not true. And the least anxious about the effects of rapid social cultural, and demographic change on the wider national community. They are also less likely than average to feel proud of Britain. And it's well worth going into the statistics that make up that one, because that's where you get your traditionalists versus cosmopolitans. Then he goes on, even if they are least likely to be affected by these ideas, the new elite's passionate calls for more immigration, globalisation and open borders. I know nearly nobody who's ever called for open borders, by the way. And to rejoin the European Union, their claim that Western nations such as Britain are institutionally racist and that white people should acknowledge their white privilege or white guilt because the things that happened decades, if not centuries ago, are all examples of their elite beliefs, routinely, they signal these beliefs to other elites, not only to try to garner more social status for themselves, All right. but to dissociate themselves from who they see as morally inferior masses below, who have the wrong education, the wrong values, and the wrong political loyalties. In the other words, they are, in short, utter bastards. Right. This snobby <laughs> on that precious on that. self-serving. No, it's, hold on. It's tell a great us, book. It's no, a really good This book. is you not. You sound like you're enjoying <laughs> this. No, well, I do really. The language is everything. The new language is not an economic category like ABCs and C1s and C2s. It's not even a self-identified yeah. category like expressing religious affiliation. This is like turfs or Kulaks, essentially. It's a name given to a group you want people to
2: understand is their enemy. Can I just... Can, can, yeah, I, I will, I I I will let, you I, I you, I will let you, I will let you, I will let you... But I just want to say to the audience that in a few minutes' time, we are going to take questions. so See. And I'm going to take them in groups of three. Microphones are going to come around, so just think um, about any questions you'd like to ask. I will let you respond, because there was a lot to unpack in what David just said. There are just two thoughts that I, I wanted to, to leave. He um, uh, yes, he knows it, because uh, you said he wrote it. Um, yeah. But the So he doesn't have to say it again? He doesn't have to no. say it. No, please don't say it again. But the two things, the two thoughts, I wanted um, perhaps to bring a slight more conciliatory um, sort of feeling to it, is what happened to the art of persuasion? What happened to the art of persuasion in politics about yeah. trying to reach out to the other side? The polarisation that you, you, you talked about that's happened certainly in the US um, and is happening, has happened here. Why, why has that gone uh, largely from our discourse Um, and the only other question... I've I've forgotten what the other question was. Well, Can I just answer
3: that and respond to David (laughs) at the same time? So I did write that, and much of that, by the way, comes from the description of that group by uh, by More In Common, which did a really, really good report on the different tribes of voters in British politics, and I'd urge you all to engage with More In Common because their stuff is really good. Um, And they came up with the viewing habits and the television and the radio. It's interesting, by the way, that Radio 4 today has lost over 2 million listeners since Brexit. And we can laugh at GB News, but the reality is there wouldn't be a need for GB News if the media landscape had been reflecting and representing Aye. the values and the views of many voters <laughs> who were not included <laughs> in the national conversation. And, and what David is saying, and you heard it earlier on, is, oh, well, Matt's at, Matt's at Kent. What he means
2: no, don't say it. What... 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 He That's me- a what? A Kent. What, what a Kent. <laughs> what... K-E-S-T.
3: What... 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 What he means is... <laughs> I'm worried about... He you're really... Playing. He really wants to be like us. That's what he means. Oh! Well, all right, and well... And he I'll, wants... Uh, he wants to join... He, he is so frustrated that he is not in mm. this new elite class that he's written a book uh, filled with frustration and anger. Why can't he be more Mm. like us? Which, in Mm. a sense, is what I'm arguing in the book. It reflects the moral righteousness, the sense of superiority that pervades this group. That if the idiotic voters had just understood Mm. that our project (laughs) was good for them, mass migration is good for them, globalisation is good for them, Uh, safe and legal routes with no upper limits is good for them. Uh, Then, actually, things would have been fine, but it turns out that actually voters aren't idiots. No,
2: I'm not sure sure who's saying all of these things. Voters
3: looked at the system over the last half century increasingly and realised it wasn't working for people like them. And the blunt reality is, unfortunately, there's a generation of people that I think David reflects who just don't really understand or cannot handle the fact... That many voters have concluded that that liberal consensus was broken. It wasn't working for them. Now we can either meet those voters and give them something else, and I've suggested how in the book. We could lower migration. We could start to prioritise British workers. We could start to reskill. We could start to push back against divisive, radical ideologies and schools and the institutions which are not British, which are hardwired to push us apart, not to pull us together. Or you can keep on just. Having well, your, let me your put, foot on the
2: pedestal, right, I'm going to give David the final response before I throw it open um, to questions, particularly on this idea of a liberal yeah, consensus. I, I
4: have a very good friend who's a leading psychoanalyst, and he would have found that answer really interesting. But that's what you say. Uh, no, Hang really, on. really Hang interesting. On. I mean, the funny thing is, the thing that you just put in my head was the very opposite of what I was saying, but it came out of your mouth. And anyone will tell you. But therefore, you have told us that that's the situation. I haven't said it at all. I don't even believe it. You literally my sister, said it earlier my on. Sister, no, I haven't. And my sister went to Salford University. My mother never went to university at all. My father went to university at the age of 49, having left school at 14. I have no contempt whatsoever for Kent University, Salford University, Brunel University, for the University of Bedfordshire. I have no contempt for them all. I am absolutely in favour of the expansion of higher education to and, and the opening of new universities in all the places, actually, which the right wing in this country totally revile because, precisely because, they have given opportunity to the sons and daughters of people who previously weren't a member of the Conservative and other elites. That's, that's the truth. Right. So why And yet, no, nevertheless, from all of that, you have managed to discover that I look down upon you because you went to Salford University like my sister did. Well, that's extraordinary. I so, mean, David, David, but, but, why... But maybe, it, but maybe it isn't so surprising. And the thing I want to say, yeah, before, before to we go, Matt, I attended the National Conservatives and Conference. This is not about... Uh, guilt by association. Your speech, and you know I said this, was one of the most effective at the National Conservative uh, 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 gathering, where you were surrounded by a whole series of kind of pro-Orbanist people actually paid by Viktor Orban and reactionary Catholics and anti-vaxxers and one or two quite good and sensible people like David Goodhart, um, uh, who also um, uh, attended that conference. But your speech was a cry for action. Etc. And what I'm saying simply is you have become a political activist, not an analyst anymore, and that is evident in the book. And the book is a, is a call to arms, not a serious political analysis. It's All in right. order to do something. And what I'm saying to you is, and you've kind of outlined it, most of your proposals either don't work because they all or, because they only really come down to cutting migration and that won't actually make this country richer. And that's actually the reason, not because of the EHRC, for God's sake, that Tory governments didn't back it down. And that's the reason why we have a low skilled uh, level, because we wanted the people to come in to do our social care. Mm. The new Conservatives, who were the people who came out of the National Conservative Conference, their first proposal for cutting immigration was to cut the number of visas for people coming abroad Abroad to do social care. And you think that is a solution that the British people want. You, you are not, but you, that's not the game you're in. You you're know perfectly well if on. the Conservative Party was to do all the things you say, it would still get shellacked at the next election. Your game and the game of the people who are around you is right. the next Conservative Party leadership after the next election when you think there may be a populist move, moment, when the Do Labour you, government finds itself in genuine difficulty, partially due to what's happened over the course of the last years. Is that what you're interested
2: minutes. in, by the way? The next Conservative leadership? Oh, you're yeah,
3: we'll really admit for that. No, it's just, it's always guilt by association. It would be well, like me applying the arguments of Times columnists and saying, oh, God, well, well, David, you're say. on the same pages as these columnists. The National Conservatism Conference was... I think actually one of the most interesting conferences that's been held in a long time because it talked about things that actually really matter. Like Ah. how to fix productivity, how to support the family. But the highest rates of family breakdown in the Western world. David Mm. never wants to talk about that. But with both of those,
2: but with both of you on that, that was what I wanted to ask both of you, echo chambers, that if you, you, you attended all of the conferences by the sounds of it and you are here debating with Matthew. But in the main people with strong views on either side, whether it's on culture wars, whether it's on how you run the economy, is there too much of an echo chamber that people exist on, beyond Twitter, where it certainly is an echo chamber, and there isn't enough of this sort of discourse to hear the arguments that you both are presenting? I disagree with you, by the way, uh, uh, and I would, uh, on the basis that people like you with your views were not, uh, or couldn't find their voice on the BBC, for example, because you're on the programme every five minutes, it seems. And and I... (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it's not true to say that we didn't have, uh, we didn't have and don't have, and certainly through the Brexit debate, just to say those views, diversity of thought is what we try to go for. No, no, but no, no, no. But no. more of that...
3: What you talk about is <laughs> sexual, gender, racial diversity. The BBC doesn't talk about viewpoint diversity. Well, no, crucial, saying, crucial difference. I, I do. Crucial difference. I
2: do. Uh, we, do. Well, we do. Anyway, it's not about me. It's not about me. We do talk about diversity of thought. On well, you obviously do, them.
4: which is why you have all these bloody headbangers on from you both sides.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, have Viva, you
4: have him or, on, and yeah. then you have
2: Ash Sarkar on, etc. Mm, Normal, mm.
4: sensible people can't get a look in.
2: Ah. <laughs> David, I think we've got an invitation out to you very shortly. Um, Thank you to both of you. Thank you to our speakers and thank you for being such a great audience.
1: Good night. Thanks so much for joining us at home. If you enjoyed this podcast, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes our exclusive cover story, an interview by Lionel Barber with the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, as well as Nicola Kutcher on biodiversity in our national parks, Julian Pagini in conversation with the philosopher Daniel Dennett, and Imogen West Knights on the Netflix show Sex Education.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.